Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm your host, Ken Ward, guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by Rutledge, the world's leading academic publisher in the humanities and social sciences. Each year, Rutledge publishes thousands of books and journals, serving scholars, instructors, and professional communities worldwide. If there's one thing we've learned about the journalism industry in the past 20 years, it's that it's far from constant. Emerging digital technologies and shifting audience habits have led to monumental changes throughout the industry. But while the specifics of this current period of change may be unique to our era, the process of change itself is perhaps the only constant in the history of American journalism. The industry is in constant flux, having experienced many periods of change in the past as journalism morphed to meet the unique demands of its era. Journalism went through one such transformation in the mid-1800s. As journalism historian Dr. Bill Huntsicker explains in his book The Popular Press, 1833-1865, through 1865, the shift in the economics and content of journalism of the era leading up to the Civil War was every bit as consequential as the changes we're experiencing today. After an academic and professional career in the upper Midwest of Montana, Dr. Huntsicker retired from St. Cloud State University in 2017. In this episode, he walks us through the changes journalism underwent in the mid-1800s. Dr. Huntsicker, welcome to the show. So it seems that this story begins like so many others in journalism history in New York City. So what was it that was changing there in journalism in the mid-1830s, which is where the book begins? And how did those changes differ from the old ways of doing journalism? Well, there's, there's a tendency to look at this as a revolutionary idea. In fact, there is a book called The Communication Revolution back in the 80s or 1970s. It says, the communication revolution began on September 3rd, 1833, which is the publication date of the New York Sun, the first successful penny newspaper. Mm-hmm. But times were really tough. I mean, people worked. Long, long hours. They had very little family time, very little leisure time, and very little discretionary spending money. So when uh, Benjamin Day started selling a newspaper on the street for a penny, he was competing not with other newspapers, but with penny candy. Huh. In fact, in 1833, the first person to try a penny newspaper was Horace Greeley, but he just started it in January in the middle of a blizzard, and it failed after a few days. Hmm. But uh, the idea was selling newspapers on the street, uh, trying to appeal to the masses, the mass mass communication idea, and uh, rather than to uh, small groups. Newspapers before then are generally subscribed. People who had the money, wanted to keep track of their portfolio, had investments to make, or they belonged to certain groups like abolitionist societies or other uh, religious groups, church groups. All of these organizations had newspapers. In fact, even the abolitionist societies, different societies had different newspapers. So there's all kinds of, there's turmoil, but there's also... um, not this is not a society uh, that the people at the bottom have any say much at all. They have long working hours, not a lot of leisure time. And Benjamin Day, who started the first penny newspaper in New York, uh, started it by selling it on the street for a penny. 
Um, most penny newspapers only sold for a penny for maybe a few weeks. The prices always went up. But that's basically what life was like, and that's what they're trying to appeal to, people who didn't normally read, basically. And as literacy grew, and you could say newspapers had something to do with the growth of literacy, as literacy grew, then newspapers grew in popularity, uh, and they were cheap enough for people to afford them. And so what was it about the business model that shifted that allowed them to sell them at a penny, right? What changed between the partisan era and the penny era in terms of how the business operated? Well, I don't want to overstate the changes, but the business model depended on advertising. The penny didn't pay for the newspaper. Advertisers did. And the penny made newspapers available to larger numbers of people. As a result, then the newspapers were written for a mass audience. So it, uh, it had more content that people are interested in. And they're also written at a different level. They're written so that people who are not as literate as the elites uh, would be interested in them. They also had, uh, they were made, because they had a larger audience, they could charge more for advertising. And when James Gordon Bennett founded his New York Herald, he uh, reached an audience that had more of an upscale interest. While he was very sensational, he got more sensational than anybody else, he also had interesting stock market uh, news. And so he could say that he is he could charge more for his advertising. That's what his uh, uh, managing editor said when he wrote a history of journalism. So that the New York Herald said they could charge more because they were, reached a higher quality audience. So he could say the penny newspapers started the whole ratings process and the demographics stuff back in the 1830s. The New York Herald started in 1835, and that's when the battle over uh, the audiences began on the street. So the newspapers started selling audiences to advertisers. This begins as early as the 1830s. And that gave them enough money, like uh, the New York Herald, to really invest in covering the Civil War. The Herald and then Greeley's uh, New York Tribune, which was founded in 1840, they were the major newspapers covering the Civil War. And so so you, you mentioned the, the penny aspect of it. There's that economic angle. What what sorts of things appeared in the newspapers? Like how did the content change or the advertising, things like that? What was different about Like what characterizes the, the popular press? Well, the, the uh, mainstream press before that talked about whatever the issue was of their sponsors. They're talking about uh, economic issues, the marketplace, shipping news, or they're talking about the uh, politics of who's going to be president and trying to keep the political organizations together. The New York Sun, then later the New York Herald, they want to appeal to a more audience, uh, popular audience. And of course, if you want a popular audience, you want big ratings, you want sex and violence. Sure. <laughs> and the New York Herald, which is sponsored by James Gordon Bennett in 1835, that was much more about sex and violence. But um, they all, Bennett founded his newspaper in a basement of the Wall Street uh, building, I think for $500 or something like that. He got his business started. He understood Wall Street in ways that few people did. But the uh, uh, Professor Ed Emery, who was my 
mentor at Minnesota called that comparable to Playboy magazine of the 1980s and 90s when I was first starting the study, uh, maybe 70s and 80s, I should say. He said people bought Playboy magazine. They said they didn't buy it for the pictures. They bought it for the interviews. Well, if you're carrying around a New York uh, Herald uh, in New York, you would say you're buying it for the financial news. Even though, but Bennett was writing about a lot of sex and violence. Sure. In fact, there's a famous murder of a prostitute a block off of Wall Street. This is somebody a lot of people on Wall Street knew. Uh, and uh, she was uh, murdered in a very vicious way. But uh, Bennett threw himself into the story uh, and uh, had all kinds of theories about the murder of Helen Hewitt or Ellen Hewitt, depending on which paper you read, uh, but that sold the paper and it made him very popular, but he also understood financial news. Sure. And one of the things that the penny papers did, especially Bennett, he defined himself on what he wasn't. Uh, James Watson Webb was a publisher of the Courier and Inquirer, a major New York newspaper, he trained a lot of people who founded penny newspapers, including Bennett and and Henry Raymond. Bennett defined himself by what he wasn't. And Webb had invested in Wall Street and wrote about Wall Street. And Bennett said he would never invest in the stocks that he wrote about. So he created a sort of independence about that. He, he was not particularly modest either. He said he wanted to be the Shakespeare of the newspaper press. So, so what happened then to the old ways? So those older, older ways of journalism, like the partisan press or the mercantile press, how did, did, did those fade out? Or did this new style, this popular press style, interact with those older ways of journalism? Well, the old ways never went away. <laughs> There's like uh, newspapers that continue to require subsidies to operate. And they often got that from political parties. There's also newspapers who... Um, would start out, they all, they all declared their independence, even though they did get help from political parties and endorsed politicians. Uh, so the old days continued throughout the uh, 19th century. Okay. It, it'd be like having uh, MSNBC and Fox News everywhere. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and everybody had a different perspective. It wasn't just two sides. There's multi-sides to issues. So several key technologies emerged during this period. Um, how did, the, uh, you know, you start this book in the, the 1830s, but it continues through the end of the Civil War. Um, so we, we saw some major technological leaps in terms of communications technology in particular. So how did, what were some of those technologies and how did they impact journalism and direct the development of this model of journalism? Well, one of the interesting things is each new technology is going to bring us a peaceful world, right? Like the Internet's going to bring us all together. And oh, sure. television, television's going to give us a global village. Well, uh, Bennett, who was the uh, publisher of the most popular paper in New York at the time in 1844 when the Telegraph was invented, he said that'd be the end of newspapers because people would just go down the Telegraph office to get their news. So he thought news would have to be more interpretive and and add more perspective than just facts about events. So there's, this is a debate that's been going on for a long time. And, and uh, so the telegraph is a big, important technology. And then the steam presses. The penny press is made possible by 
uh, steam presses that could print rapidly. Before that, there were hand-operated presses, and as the press moved west, um, there were had to be presses that you could move in an ox cart or a covered wagon to western territories, but you they were won by a couple of people where you printed one sheet at a time. So steam presses, you could print thousands of pages of the same impression at one time. It's interesting, though, that even though you could print really fast, and uh, in the, the, during the Civil War, they could actually put make illustrations and printed illustrated newspapers overnight, uh, you still had to set the type by hand. So it took teams of typesetters standing at a type case, a job case it was called, setting one letter at a time onto a page uh, in order to, to get a page ready. But once it's on the press, they could print them out thousands. Well, that's, that's one interesting thing here. So, so how did technologies like the steam press and then, you know, how did those things change the economics of journalism to make it, to make it grow? Because it seems like it would, would have a definite impact on, on sort of the scale of journalism nationally. You had to have uh, capital. It made it a capital investment. One or two people could create a newspaper in a small town and run a hand-operated press where you put in one page at a time. Let's say one sheet of paper is two pages. You just fold it in half, and you got four pages. You print one side, and then you print the other side, printing one side at a time. Uh-huh. And two people could do that, and uh, that took forever. But once you have the large presses going much faster, you can have teams of teams of reporters, and you can uh, turn out multi-page papers. The web press means you start with a roll of paper, put the roll of paper on the press, run it through, and uh, print the multiple page. Another thing that uh, was an innovation is they could. It was a prefecting press, meaning they could print two sides of the page at a time. So when the paper went through the press, it printed both sides. It would come out completed rather than having to print one side of the sheet, turn it over, then print the other side of the sheet. You can sort of see how the technology would change very rapidly there. But it's not, not until the 1880s that we get a linotype machine where somebody could sit at a keyboard and actually call up the letters. And I would assume that these changes then, speeding up the process of production uh, and, and sort of economizing some aspects of it, means that you can have a, a bigger newspaper, both in size and in terms of the depth or the, the amount of content inside. Is that right? Yes. Doesn't mean the content got deeper until the right. Civil War when you have reporters out in the field. But the, the selling the paper on the street, you want things that will sell because somebody's standing on the street selling this paper for a penny, to say the New York Sun. And then uh, by 1835, you have somebody from the Herald standing across the street trying to sell his paper. So you've got competing uh, uh, either schoolboys or people who are not in school or unemployed men who you know buy their papers like they pay 67 cents for 100 papers. And if they sell them, all 100 papers, they make a profit that day, and if they don't, they're at a loss. So the publishers needn't, didn't even uh, ha- invest in the day's paper that much. When you have the large presses, the steam presses, then they could print out thousands. 
you, you can definitely see the way that competition would play out then in New York City, especially with those newsies, you know, standing across the street hawking papers. But you mentioned that uh, eventually this this mode of journalism sort of filters out to the West. It's it's a maybe a story centered often in New York City, but it definitely plays out in the West as well. Can you speak to that a little bit? Um, where else was was the, the popular press model adopted in the United States? And can can you point out any examples of the way it adapted to local circumstances? How how were things different in other parts of the country? Well, well, you brought up earlier the fact that newspapers were subsidized. Well, as newspapers moved west, one of the ways that a small town would talk about how civilized they become, and they talk about civilizing the west, as you probably know, uh, one of the ways a town becomes civilized is they have a public school and they have a newspaper. And so newspapers become boosters of the towns. So somebody founds a town and want people to come there. Uh, sometimes they're founded by railroad companies. They want people to come there. They create a newspaper, maybe give the publisher some land in which to build his office, maybe even build an office for him. So he has to promote the town. He not only has to promote the town because he's helped, but he also needs the town for subscribers and advertisers. So they have an investment in a small town. They boost the town. You know, the prairie in Kansas or the great American desert is going to become the Garden of Eden. There's all kinds right. of... And, and, uh, and the weather in Minnesota, speaking close to where I live now, uh, and it's about 20 degrees now, but it was below zero overnight. Uh -huh. uh, this weather's good for you. I mean, the St. Paul Pioneer talked about how this weather makes you healthier and you live longer and you're hardier because you live in this cold weather. And that's that's uh, the way they sold wherever they were. So did did they still out in the West? Did they did they play up those same sensational angles on stories like they did in New York City? Oh, well, one of the things I've done a lot of work since the book on on Western newspapers and, and smaller town papers. And one of the things is, and we historians have been criticized for focusing too much on New York, but actually the newspapers depended a lot on New York. There were what they called exchange papers. So every small town paper got uh, newspapers from neighboring towns and from other parts of the country. And they reprinted usually with credit uh, items from these other towns. And so, the newspapers were enormously influential, uh, even on the big issues, because the small towns often reprinted from the larger newspapers. And people who moved to, say, uh, small towns out west, they wanted to get news from wherever it was they came from. And so the town's uh, paper would reprint from those, uh, the larger metropolitan areas, sometimes nearby, sometimes New York. Well, um, one of the interesting points that you raised in the book that I wanted to ask you about was had to do with the rise of the telegraph and, and the relationship between the East and the West, because you, you mentioned that some of the Western newspapers actually competed with one another eventually to export their information back to the East, especially once we get later in the era closer to the Civil War. Um, how, how did that work out? Well, if part of the idea, if you're starting a newspaper in St. Paul, Minnesota, you want people to come there. And so you want stories that are going to be reprinted in the papers back east. So you write things that are interesting. So maybe somebody in New York will reprint your item and that gives you some cachet. It also 
attracts people to the area. So, sure. you know, hear about the blizzard in Minnesota, but you also hear about how healthy it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> so as, as the era progresses, we get to some, some major events in American history, and namely, uh, we eventually arrive at the Civil War. But before the Civil War arrives, we have other wars. We have the Mexican War, and one very interesting episode in the book deals with bleeding Kansas and the way newspapers competed for really the, the the fate, at least the temporary fate, of the state of Kansas. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, Kansas is such a fascinating place historically because there were competing interests there. As you know, there were uh, – that th was the popular sovereignty idea was the federal policy. So when a, a territory votes to become a state, they also voted whether they're going to be a free state or a slave state. And, of course, their various interests had a lot invested in whether Kansas was going to be slave or free. Abolitionist societies in New England particularly created towns like the town of Lawrence in Kansas as abolitionist strongholds uh, next to Missouri, which was a safe state. And Missourians were very much involved in Kansas politics and other things like uh, guerrilla raiders and so on. So they had each faction had its own newspapers. In 1855, there were three newspapers created in the town of Lawrence, Kansas, and they represented different positions. One was a, a friendly to slavery. Others were more, one more was a, a more independent, but they represented the different factions, and they got violent. But what's particularly violent were the slave supporters from Missouri who would come and attack Lawrence. Lawrence was sacked and burned a couple of times, one time there was a raid that was just focused on a newspaper, two newspapers. They destroyed the newspaper offices. And I found a Kansas paper. I couldn't find a reference before today, but I found a, there's a Kansas newspaper that on the same page talked about the importance of a free press. And on another, uh, another part of the page, there's a blurb about how this one press in Lawrence was destroyed, and it was a damn good thing because it was supporting <laughs> the abolition of slavery. So the people who destroyed this press in Lawrence knew what they were doing. They made sure that this press would never be used again. So we have all kinds of contradictions like that. In class, I'd say that, you know, freedom of the press means freedom for your side. You know? Right, right. So the, the, as I said, the book ends at the Civil War. Um, and one point you raise is that, that the Civil War actually sort of accelerated the spread of this popular mode of the press um, throughout the country and sort of made it the dominant mode of conducting journalism over others. How did it do so? Why, what, what was it about this popular press model that really resonated as the century progressed into the Civil War? Well, news sells. I mean, when, when news becomes a commodity, uh, which it did during the Civil War, there's a lot of competition to sell news because people want to know what's happening in the war. A lot of small towns, for instance, had regiments from their town. As you probably know, the, much of the army was made up of state and local militias who signed up for this federal cause. And sometimes uh, report, uh, soldiers would send reports back to their local newspapers. And so they reprinted the articles from their local soldiers. They also sent correspondents to follow the armies. And so you have 
especially the major papers in New York and Chicago and uh, Boston, they sent correspondents to follow the major uh, armies, and they developed an interest from the field. So a reporter following the army knows more about what's going on than the editor back in New York often. And so the reporter becomes sort of a power base of his own out there determining what the facts are and sending them home. Even there are a lot of notorious uh, editors who took control over their uh, content, like uh, Wilbur's story of Chicago. The Chicago Times was a... a uh, Copperhead publication, that means they supported the Confederacy in this northern city. But uh, Wilbur Story famously said, send all the news you can. When you find no news, send rumors. He also, <laughs> he also said the role of a newspaper is to print the news and raise hell. But uh -huh. he, he hired two of the best reporters of the Civil War. One of them was Savannah's Cadwallader, who went, later went to the New York Herald, and the other was Frank Wilkie who gave us the story about story telling us, telling his people to go send rumors if there's no news. The last question that we like to ask guests on the show is, um, why does journalism history matter? Well, that's what you, you said you're going to ask me that, and I'm, I'm still working on it. I think, <laughs> you know, we have journalism history, as is journalism, is very important. You know, it's really Really, when you get religion mixed up in politics, it's hard to separate them out. But that happened big time in the 1840s with the war with Mexico. And it was a newspaper uh, who created the term Manifest Destiny, saying God was on our side, basically, in the Mexican War. And the Manifest Destiny was created not to fight the Indians, as we look at it in hindsight. It was created to give the United States uh, authority, divine right, to control the North American continent when the competition was coming from uh, France and Great Britain and Russia. And we're trying to establish the American dominance over the North American continent. So they created this term, Manifest Destiny. Well, that's a news uh, paper, based magazine uh, idea that took popular... Uh, grab the popular imagination, we're still using the term manifest destiny, like that's some kind of divine right that white settlers have to control the continent. Well, that comes from newspapers. The, the origins of these ideas, the proliferation of these ideas is supremely important to understanding them, I think, and to understand our society, culture, and politics. This is not, there's a lot of fake news, but this is not fake news. This is really important stuff, although uh, one of our prominent historians um, has written about all the things we get wrong <laughs> but uh, in journalism history, and there's a need a lot of introspection, but it's very important. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Bill Hunsaker. I appreciate you, you being on the show with us. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in, and an additional thanks to our sponsor, Rutledge, the world's leading academic publisher in the humanities and social sciences, and to Taylor and Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Until next time, I'm your host, Ken Ward, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. <laughs>